Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The Biden administration's decision to support waiving intellectual property protections for COVID-19 vaccines and treatments has sparked a fierce debate in the IP space. Some argue that protections are what incentivize vaccine manufacturers to produce what are now the country's antidote to the pandemic. But others say these protections are slowing down global vaccination rates, especially in the developing world. Why has the TRIPS waiver brought forward this discussion around IP rights? And what might this mean about the administration's approach to IP rights? Today's guest is Michael Rosen. Michael is an AEI adjunct fellow who specializes in intellectual property rights issues. Though most of his AEI work addresses the intersection of IP and tech, Mike has become a frequent commentator on COVID-19 vaccine IP protections. He also writes, often, on IP-related incentives for innovation, the advent of AI and the AI-generated inventions, and on patent reform in Congress and the U.S. PTO. He's based in Israel. He's an IP attorney and a graduate of Harvard Law School. He joins us today to discuss the state of IP policy and what the TRIPS waiver would mean for pharmaceutical innovation and IP protections, and why IP rights are important for technology and innovation. Mike, welcome back to D.C. The fact that you and I are sitting together here in the American Enterprise Institute recording studio is a testament that amazing progress has been made in the fight against covid To get us started, can you give us a general overview of what has been happening in the IP space with the Biden administration? Sure, Shane. And first of all, thanks so much for having me here. It is really special to be able to be in a room with someone recording. And it is a testament to the, we'll get into this a little later, but the truly miraculous nature of these vaccines and, and a testament to ingenuity, innovation, and the modern technological system and everything that goes into supporting it. Actually, as a just a note on that point, yesterday marked the last time in Israel, where I live, that masks had to be worn indoors, period. So now Israel, as far as every restriction is concerned, is back to normal fully. And, and that also is a testament to the prevalence and the proliferation of the vaccines over there. But being here in D.C., it's great to be back here for me for the first time in almost 20 months. And it's interesting to see how things have have developed outside and and all around, specifically on the IP issues, apart from the TRIPS waiver, which we'll get into in a minute. The Biden administration is moving ahead slowly on various issues, and so is Congress. It would be nice to see a little more progress on certain issues like patent reform, patent eligibility changes, which we've been tracking for a couple of years, the development of computer-generated inventions and the like. But things are moving slowly. The administration seems to have its hands full with lots of other issues trying at this point, maybe unsuccessfully to pass its quote-unquote infrastructure bill. And the IP issues have not necessarily been put on the back burner, but maybe we'd say have been put on the side burner for now. I wouldn't take that personally. We're feeling that way about the tech space altogether, even though we're still waiting for a chairman for the Federal Communications Commission and my near and dear favorites, the National Telecommunications Information Administration at the Department of Commerce. So I think just a lot has happened this year and everything's on a different time continuum than we normally see. But 
And I'm going to have you talk about the TRIPS waiver because people who have been watching this space very closely probably know quite a bit about it. The people that listen to this podcast might have a bit of an understanding, but it's a really unique case to learn about intellectual property and how important it is to technology. It really is. And just to, to kind of take a quick step back, TRIPS stands for the Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, which is a portion of the bundle of rights that the signatories of, of the World Trade Organization all enjoy. It's, in a sense, a kind of global IP regime that is meant to smooth out differences among the different countries, each of which have slightly different IP systems or, or ways of protecting innovation. Okay, and, hold on a second. So that I found really interesting because there's a certain thing that you, you think that most industries probably have a same-same comparison. And so how many, I mean, is it really by country or is it sometimes by, I mean, are there other groups of people? Like I'm used to dealing with standards where sometimes you have standards in particular parts of the country because of their spectrum or the way that they use certain machines. So how many different IP regimes are there? It's a great question. Technically speaking, every individual country has its own IP system, whether it's protecting patents, protecting trademarks, protecting copyrights. So a company like Disney, for instance, when it creates a new character or a new movie or a new cartoon, it needs to register its rights in every single country that it wants to market that product in. Same goes for Apple. When it wants to develop a new iPhone and it has patent protection over it, it needs to register its patents in every single country where it plans to sell those products. Europe is an interesting case because even though the EU is in some sense unified, there are some common procedures for obtaining patent protection there, but you still need to actually validate your patent rights in every single EU member country. And if you decide, a company decides to sue another company for patent infringement, it would need to file lawsuits in every country separately that it wishes to, to obtain protection in. That sounds exhausting as a company, <laughs> but yet a lawyer's dream. That's exactly right. I confess that it, it is certainly a lucrative area for, for the legal profession. Although in Europe in particular, there has been a push that Brexit has slightly derailed for the time being to create a so-called unified patent and a unified patent court that would actually make things much more efficient. And Germany, as it is with many different EU-related matters, is, is the driving force behind creating that unified patent and patent court. And I think most practitioners realize that it's just a good idea whose time has come, and, and hopefully that'll be there soon. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to stay on this point for a minute longer because I'm curious. Is it a cut and paste situation, or is it a place where a lot of meddling happens if you like don't like something? Or is it the 80-20 rule, like 80% of them are the same, and then you have these one-offs that happen, or does it just a patchwork? Well, I think typically, at least in the patent space, you tend a party that's, let's say, two competitors, A and B. A will sue B in the jurisdictions where it's likely to get the biggest bang for the buck, right? So it's not going to start a lawsuit, a campaign against its competitor, let's say, in Luxembourg. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're going to generally target the competitor in the place where it's selling the most product and where getting an injunction against them or getting damages from them is likely to do you the most good and them the most harm. And once you start down that path, you might also sue that competitor in other jurisdictions with the hope that you drive some sort of global settlement that won't require you to literally scorch the earth by suing them in every single one. So 
there is an aspect of copy paste to your to a campaign like that, but at the same time, you know, every jurisdiction does have its own practices and rules and regulations and a ruling in Germany is not going to be persuasive necessarily to a court in the US. You have to still satisfy your burden of proof here. So there, there are some aspects of commonality, but more it's sort of getting the ball rolling and, and using leverage in the best places. Thank you. That was a great primer. I feel like there's a bunch of law students that are probably really happy about that, as well as myself. So that brings us to how this gets us into COVID, because it's a really interesting case. Can you give us the background on, I understand there's issues with South Africa, one other country. Yes. So in October of last year, South Africa and India filed a petition before the WTO that sought to suspend or waive these TRIPS rights as they relate to COVID vaccines, treatments, and and other COVID-related matters. It's a little ambiguous what that means exactly, but it certainly is meant to cover vaccines. And the idea is to essentially suspend the, the rights of the companies such as Pfizer, Moderna, BioNTech, Novavax, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, the pioneering companies that have developed these miraculous solutions and cures to this problem that has vexed the world literally for the last 18 months, to suspend their rights to enforce their patents and other IP on these vaccines. The idea is that this would enable generic manufacturers to also produce vaccines get them out faster, get them out cheaper to the rest of the world, and manage to, to end the pandemic even sooner than it would be under, under the current regime, which does involve these select companies who pioneered and developed the drugs selling them. So that's the basic idea. Stop their patents, put them on hold, allow other generic manufacturers to make the drugs, distribute them quickly, solve the problem. That sounds very altruistic. It is. We'll come back in a minute to why, you know, the interesting case of South Africa and India, why they're the ones involved here. The charitable answer, and, and I think there is a lot of truth to it, is, of course, India, at least as of a few months ago, was ravaged by one of the worst outbreaks in the world in, in this entire period of COVID and unfortunately did not have the capacity, did not have vaccines, still doesn't have enough vaccines to, to vaccinate its 1.3 billion people. But there are other explanations as well involving the fact that India and South Africa are the leading countries for producing generic drugs, generally speaking, not necessarily COVID. And what they're seeking would actually bestow a windfall on the generic industry. So it's not necessarily coming from a place that's misguided, but there are other interests there besides just solving the pandemic that's raging in their countries. So I know that here in the United States, I believe it's 20 years is your time on, and then there's the, the clock starts ticking as soon as you're from the FDA, there's variables on that. So I would imagine this, as we, we knew it here as Project Warp Speed, was amazing. And there, like anything, were cost benefits to doing all this and taking people off of other projects and putting them on this and trying to solve a world pandemic. And God bless all the people that spent probably 24 hours a day working on that. But it turns out as you look at the, the data around this, and you've written several pieces here for the AEI Tech Policy Daily blog on how that, it sounds like a great thing, but it really didn't have the leverage on the problem that we thought it might have had. So walk us through that. Sure. So 
The problem with the waiver proposal is that it does too much that's bad and too little that's good. Let's start on the too little that's good side. First of all, if it will take up to at least the end of this year before the WTO in a consensus fashion can actually make progress on this proposal. It's a long, slow, bureaucratic process to get one of these types of waivers through the WTO. So even though at the beginning of May, the Biden administration signaled it would support this motion, there's still a lot of opposition, especially in Europe, also in Australia and Japan and other places, to this petition to suspend the rights. And according to what's been reported, it's likely that it will take until November, December for the WTO to actually reach a decision on that. By that time, of course, the worst of the raging pandemic in India and other, and other places around the world will have passed, and many, many more hundreds of millions of doses will be created by then. But it's not just that. Even after a process has been approved, it will take a significant amount of time for these generic manufacturers to get off the ground test their products, obtain the necessary regulatory approvals that they're safe and as safe and as effective as the branded Pfizer, Moderna, et cetera, types of vaccines. And even when you get to that, the main problem in developing countries right now is not so much the lack of vaccines, but although that is a problem, but the lack of infrastructure in terms of supply chain and logistics to get these medicines in the hands of the people that need them. Talking about, in many cases, with with Pfizer at least, the deep freezing capacity, refrigerated or frozen trucks and, and, and transportation. So there are many, many, many bottlenecks. There's also raw materials bottlenecks that are holding things up. So it does too little because the real problem here isn't that patents are preventing people from being vaccinated. It's that all these other conditions are, are preventing it. And that's, that's where I would say it, it, it just does too little that's good to actually waive these protections. That supply chain always in there. So it, it's not this money-grubbing pharmaceutical problem, which most people like to make it out to be, even though perhaps I'm, I'm a free marketer and I'm for profit, people making profits. So what happened, like I'm being anecdotal here, now I'm thinking in the back of my head, Johnson & Johnson, and I believe they didn't have complete control over their supply chain. Is that something that would be a concern for somebody allowing their patent to go to a generic? I'm going back to your, your little lawyer quit thing you talked about here a minute ago that I have don't have complete control once it goes off patent. Right. So, so that is going to be a problem. It's not so much a problem for the pioneering drug companies as it is for those who are trying to, to copy what they're doing, and even more so for the patients who are going to be receiving these doses that, that may not be properly tested and and may not arrive on time if they can't get the supply chain and all the associated know-how to go with it. Some who are, I think, even on the more extreme side of this debate would say not only should Pfizer and J&J and AstraZeneca and Moderna have to suspend their right to enforce their patents, but they need to be compelled to affirmatively hand over all of their know-how, all of their trade secret developed sort of secret sauce of how to actually make this, make and supply and distribute these products to the generic manufacturers in these countries. And it's interesting because a company like Moderna actually agreed last year, they took a public pledge that they will not enforce their own patents as it relates to the COVID vaccine. And 
So from their perspective, in some ways, this is kind of a non-issue because they've said very altruistically, we're going to give up our patents until this pandemic is over. But what the waiver would do would go far beyond that because there are other patents related to the technology involved, the mRNA vector for developing the, the technology. And those patents would also fall by the wayside, even not necessarily related to, to COVID. So it could go way too far in that regard. And you have these companies, especially a company like Moderna, it was literally facing bankruptcy. It had gone all in investing billions of dollars in this mRNA technology. And had it not succeeded as it did, thank God, and, and again, miraculously managed to, to wipe this virus almost off the face of the planet, had it failed, that company would have gone under. So, you know, it's very easy, as some activists do, to paint with a broad brush that big pharma is evil and is profit hungry and, and money mad. But in fact, these companies are taking real risks with real dollars from real investors. And without the promise of some kind of return, there, we wouldn't have these breakthroughs. It's that simple. The one thing I've found interesting is hopefully a long tail on this is that we've learned we can't treat everything same, same eventually, like when we have more time, not when we're dealing with the pandemic, but that there will be variables. I mean, it's one thing when I find out somebody's had COVID, I'm like, what blood type are you? And I realize that's, again, anecdotal, but I've, you kind of do find that a lot of people and, you know, I'm O and O positive, like you probably are standing next to somebody. It just didn't, I never had anything. I mean, tested negative four times and had the shot and didn't have any reaction. And people are like, damn. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe maybe all that vitamin D helped. But sure it did. So I, I feel like you were, there was another side of the equation. Sorry, I cut you yeah, off. Yeah. So, so just to, to follow up on that, you know, along the lines of it does too much, problem is not even necessarily this pandemic. The truth is Pfizer and Moderna, J&J, I haven't checked their balance sheets, but it could be that by this point, they've already recovered enough from sales to developed nations that they've made good on their investments already. Now, it's not for governments of the world to say when a company has made enough money, right? But at the same time, you know, from the pure perspective of taking a snapshot of today. Right. Sidebar, I kind of feel like we're seeing that go on in Congress right now. Nope, time out. <laughs> You've made too much money. Didn't have to do the patents, though. So keep going. Exa <laughs> no, exactly. It, it, it's not the place of governments to say that. But the bigger problem isn't so much what money in the future these companies are going to make on the COVID vaccine. The problem is for the next pandemic, which we have to assume is going to happen at some point, maybe in our lifetimes, hopefully not, maybe in our children's or grandchildren's lifetimes, what's going to happen then when the next set of Pfizer's and Moderna's and J&J's and AstraZeneca's expect that even when they come up with this terrific cure for the next pandemic, for the next virus, that they're going to have to suspend their patents at that point. It's going to give them pause. It's going to give their investors pause. It's going to give their innovators pause to know that they could be pouring in billions of dollars, again, into R&D, into developing and into testing, into developing these cures, only to have it taken away from them. So that's where, where in my view, it does too much. I'm lacking the name of the venture capital company, but it does. I have a note here that says the venture capital company behind Moderna has raised the largest fund it aims to build for a next generation of biotech companies. So this article is, I was reading was particularly saying that, you know, they, they see a lot of future in this and they only would put more money into it, which would probably help our current situation, realizing that there's going to be a lot in the horizon for 
companies like Moderna, which, as you mentioned, was kind of on the edge. Yeah, ab- absolutely. That's what our system's all about. That's what our system of IP protection and innovation relies on. It's a risk reward benefit in exchange for disclosure. That's what the system is all about. And in my view, and the view of many who oppose this waiver, there are very concrete and much more effective steps that these companies and Western countries can take to end the pandemic much faster that don't involve waiving patents. For instance, the companies can be encouraged to manufacture more doses even faster than they are. And I think they are feeling the pressure from, because of the threat of the waiver, they are feeling the pressure to crank out even more doses even faster, although there are raw materials constraints that prevent them from doing that. But even more so, this is a golden opportunity for the United States, for the UK, for other Western European countries to engage in a really dramatic kind of vaccine diplomacy. This is a great opportunity to reach out, to start for the government to buy, spend a few tens of billions of dollars buying doses and giving them away in countries where our influence can, can be felt to create a sense of gratitude to the United States and, and also out of a sense of that it's the right thing to do. And yes, it will be expensive. There's no question. But when the Biden administration is talking about spending a $1.9 trillion on, on the so-called infrastructure plan, you tens of billions of dollars to, to actually really help put a final nail in the coffin of this pandemic and also bolster U.S. influence and strategic goals around the world, this would be a no-brainer. And you know, if the vaccine manufacturers are willing to provide these at, at cost or at a small markup, this is great bang for the buck for the U.S. taxpayer. I'm going to leave the pandemic for a moment here and say it's very interesting when you talk about supply chain and the investment you need in all of this, especially in technology. And we, we hear this a lot. You just reminded me years ago, I heard Howard Stern. I was just listening to Howard Stern. And this guy calls in and he's all upset about the Americans going after bauxite. And this was in the early 2000s. And, you know, it was one of those things that's been in my head ever since because Howard Stern was so funny in the way he talked about it. But you know, I was like, what's bauxite? And then you started to realize all these precious minerals that come into play and, you know, they are finite and you have to take the time to mine them out of the earth and do with all the countries where they come from. And there's just like layers and layers and layers of things to get you to a point where eventually we're all happily walking around with these amazing mobile devices. So it's, you know, the idea of taking away the the IP in that case, or, you know, the ability to have rights around your own product. And we, and we definitely see this in certain areas that don't seem to re- respect IP rights. I was in, in Kenya once and this guy was showing me his mini iPhone and I'm looking at it thinking, that does not exist. You know, it just didn't exist. But in his head, it looked just like my iPhone, but it was half the size. And I was like, I wonder why Apple doesn't go after that. And I think I talked to an Apple rep and they're like, they're just not making enough of them for a problem. And honestly, they can't even get to our app store. <laughs> so you're like, huh, that's interesting. So in the broader scheme of my favorite space and just the real technology, you know, how how are we doing with IP rights? I know that copyright's a big issue, too, when it comes to, to content and how we're managing this. But give us the lay of the land. You've been in the space for a long time. I feel like you're always two step forward, one step back, especially around legislation. It's mm, a great question. It reminds me of a story. Also, I was with my family in Thailand and Laos in 2000 and 14, I want to say, um, shortly after the iPhone 6 had just come out, 
you may remember, the iPhone 6 was a huge seller. Oh, it, it really vaulted yeah. Apple forward. And we saw in some of these markets, iPhone 6s, I'm putting air quotes around them, selling for the equivalent of, of 50 US dollars. And you look at them and they look exactly like an iPhone, but clearly they're not iPhones. There's no way you would get a phone like that for that price. And, and as you say, they don't connect to the app store. They don't actually function in a comparable way. So it's not worth it in those cases for, for these companies to go after these folks because they're just not making enough money. Although that doesn't stop fashion brands from going after every single you know, street vendor in, in Rome or Florence who are you know, trying to sell fake bags. But to answer your bigger question, I do think that the IP regimes in the US, whether in the patent side, the trademark side, the copyright side, they're certainly imperfect. And there are important ways that we can fix them. I've been writing for a long time as long as I've been associated with AEI about different patent reform measures and ways that the system could be improved. The same is true on the trademark side and the copyright side. There are always ways to make the system better, and, and Congress and the courts and practitioners like myself should be in favor of that and should work hard to make that happen. But all that said, the basic balance, the basic trade-off in all of these systems between Disclosure to the public of how technology works, advancing technology and advancing brands and creativity in the, in the form of copyright in exchange for a limited monopoly, a limited period where these companies, these creators, these innovators can actually recoup their investment. That's a bargain that should never be trifled with in its basic, most core sense. And we do that right. We do it right here in the U.S. We do it right in Europe also, and in Japan, and increasingly, believe it or not, in China. They're realizing the importance of this and have really gone out forcefully to, to try to bolster IP rights because it bolsters innovation. And that's the kind of bargain that, that again, can certainly be improved. There are ways to improve it. But those who would challenge it fundamentally and try to, to eat away at it and erode it in the sense of all information needs to be free, right? That's not helpful, and it only undermines innovation and creativity. I think for congressional staffers or administration staffers who come to this, most of them tech natives, one of the things that is a challenge is understanding where open source comes in versus proprietary. And we just recently did a podcast with Alan Friedman from NTIA about the SBOM software bill of materials. And that was a big question for me is, now that we're much more software driven and we're getting away from hardware, especially in networking operations. How do you put the right information out there so your customer knows what they're getting without putting the secret sauce out there? And they're they're working through that. But that also gets to the challenge that you have in tech, which is I'm like, if we're solving solve for the problem, don't try to solve the solution with the technology exactly. or you're gonna basically freeze it in place and not allow it to innovate forward, which is one of the beautiful things about technology. However, it sometimes tangles with regulations and legislation in a way that isn't healthy for usually the technology or the people that want to see it move forward. Oh, it's it's so true. And, you know, the open source versus proprietary software issue is a really interesting one. And it's very context dependent. In some areas, it just makes sense to have open source, have things available to everyone to put out as a, you know, as an open book for, for folks to, to copy and manipulate and, and improve upon. 
But in some cases, it, it is better to keep that secret sauce under wraps. And it's hard to know exactly when that happens. And, and the same is true, by the way, of whether to protect certain IP as a trade secret versus as a patent. The difference is a trade secret, you have to keep it secret. You don't disclose it to the public, but no one can actually get access to it. Whereas with a patent, you lay it out there, everyone can see it, but they can't use it. So with a trade secret, if you reverse engineer what someone is doing, it's yours for the taking, right? If you're able to crack it, then there's nothing preventing you from using it. As long as you do it in, in you know, legitimate ways, you're not hacking a system, et cetera. But for a patent, if you reverse engineer someone's product and it's protected by a patent, you can't copy it anyway, even though you were able to, to do something pretty smart. So it's always a trade-off and companies have to, have to weigh all those things against each other. Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time. I think we're going to have to make this an annual thing and see how you go from here to there. And next time, hopefully, we won't be talking about the pandemic. We'll be talking about the amazing ability for innovation in this space. That would be terrific. God willing, from, from your mouth to God's ears, as they say. Thank you for being a guest on Explain to Shane. Thank you so much for having me, Shane. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.